In the late 1700s, there was a uh, politician in Ireland by the name of Boyle Roche. And uh, Boyle Roche was less known for his political career or even his distinguished military service than he was for the fact that when he opened his mouth, he often misspoke in memorable and amusing ways. And so some of his misstatements have survived for, you know, 250 years. I'm just going to share a few of them with you this morning, uh, these malapropisms of Sir Boyle Roche. Uh, So, for example, he might say, we should silence anyone who opposes the right to freedom of speech. So some unintentional irony in that statement. Uh, Here's another one. Half the lies our opponents tell about us are untrue. Now, by definition, of course, lies are untrue, right? Uh, Here's another one. Mixed metaphors. He was a master of mixed metaphors. Mr. Speaker, I smell a rat. I see him forming in the air and darkening in the sky, but I will nip him in the bud. So several metaphors going on there in that one sentence. My personal favorite is this last one. While I write this letter, I have a pistol in one hand and a sword in the other. So how do you write the letter? Now, when I read these, it reminds me of a very simple fact, and that is words are hard. There are seemingly a thousand ways that you and I can go wrong in what we say. We talk a lot. And that, that may not, it may not seem like you talk a lot, but on average, I've read that Americans, male and female, say about 16,000 words a day. So for your waking hours, that's about 1,000 words an hour on average. That's a lot of ways to say the wrong thing, the stupid thing, the sinful thing, the hurtful thing. That's a lot of ways to go wrong. Uh, if you were with us a few weeks ago, early July, we talked about words from the Proverbs, But we talked about the positive side of words from the Proverbs. What do godly words look like? And if you remember, we talked about how godly words, they're honest, they're pure, they're peaceful, they're kind, they're timely. So we looked at these characteristics of the types of words we want to say in order to uh, reflect and represent God well. This week, we're looking at the other side of words from the Proverbs, the types of words we want to avoid. Because I know for me, this is true, because of how much we speak, I often feel like talking is a little bit like that old 1980s Atari game, Pitfall. I don't know how many of you ever played Pitfall. Uh, If you didn't, basically it was a game where your character would just run through the jungle and you had to jump over stuff, logs and pits in the ground and and big uh, pits of tar and snakes and crocodiles. And there were a thousand ways that you could trip and stumble and lose the game. That's often how speaking feels. It seems like everywhere you turn, there's some way you can speak where you're going to stumble into another pitfall. This is why James says, if a person can bridle his tongue, he's a perfect man, pure in all that he does, and nobody's ever managed to do it. So I called this sermon Word Pitfalls for that very reason. And as we look at what the Proverbs says about some of these pitfalls, uh, I'm not sharing these things just to make us feel bad, although you might. 
But I'm sharing this because I want us to use this list, this tool from the Proverbs, sort of as an evaluative tool for our lives. In other words, we're gonna see five characteristics of words we don't wanna say, five types of words we don't wanna say. And as you hear them and you go, yeah, that one applies to me, yeah, that one applies to me, use it as an evaluation so you can say, where is my heart misaligned with the character of God? so that it's coming out in what I say, right? Evaluate your heart by your speech. Jesus told us, as we looked at words several weeks ago, we saw this, Jesus told us in Matthew 12 that the things that we say reflect what's in our hearts. So if you say something that is sinful, impure, angry, that comes from a sinful, impure, angry heart. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you brood of vipers, How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So the things that you say reflect the state of your heart. What comes out of your mouth tells us something about what's inside of your heart. So as we look at these word pitfalls, ask yourself, what is in my heart that causes me to stumble this way? Because then we're gonna say the only way to change our speech is to ask God, to beg God for a transformation of the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just by muscling our way through to speak better, but to say, God, change me from the inside out. So what are these speech pitfalls then that Proverbs warns us about? I'm gonna give five. The first one is over-talking. Talking too much. Now, all of us have probably been guilty of this at one time or another because all of us are tempted at different times in our lives to believe that the more we say, the better. If I say a lot of words, maybe I will eventually say something worth hearing. But that's rarely true. We know that on some level, and yet often in the midst of conversation, we can't help but just go on and on and on, dominating the relationship and dominating the conversation with our thoughts, our opinions, our words. The truth is, though, more words doesn't always mean better, doesn't always mean more significance, more encouragement, more meaning. Let me give you an example before we dive into some passages. I'm going to share two excerpts from speeches in the history of the United States. These are political speeches by well-known orators throughout the history of the United States, two of them. And I want you to ask yourself, which of these is more effective and maybe which of these is more memorable? All right, here's the first excerpt. Standing beneath this serene sky, overlooking these broad fields now reposing from the labors of the waning year, the mighty Alleghenies dimly towering before us, the graves of our brethren beneath our feet, it is with hesitation that I raise my poor voice to break the eloquent silence of God and nature. But the duty to which you have called me must be performed. Grant me, I pray you, your indulgence and your sympathy. Now, you probably don't recognize those words. Maybe you don't understand those words and what they were saying. Here's the second excerpt, given on the same occasion, all right? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. 
you almost certainly didn't recognize the first set of words. That set of words was also given after the Battle of Gettysburg at the dedication of the field in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. It was given by a man named Edward Everett, who was the keynote speaker. He spoke for more than two hours, 13,000 words, and you and I remember none of them. The second set of words, of course, was by Abraham Lincoln, his Gettysburg Address, which is now engraved in marble over a statue of the man himself in Washington, D.C. It was only 272 words long, less than five minutes. Later, Edward Everett himself, the other speaker, he said, Abraham Lincoln captured the spirit of the occasion in two minutes, better than I did in two hours. More isn't always better. Here's one problem with too many words, with talking too much. The, one of the main problems is simply this. When I'm talking, I'm not listening, right? When I'm talking, I'm not listening. So Proverbs 18, 13, the one who gives an answer before he listens, that is his folly and his shame. What's the problem when I'm always talking and not letting you talk? Well, I'm not listening to you. I'm communicating that what I have to say is more important than what you have to say, that my opinions are more important than yours. My stories are more important than me getting to know you. That tells me something about my heart, that I have a heart that needs to be in control at every moment, a heart that thinks that I'm more important than you. Have you ever been in a social situation where somebody talked on and on and on to the point that you were desperately looking for some way to escape? Most of us have. A couple of years ago, my daughter and I were at a dinner event. It wasn't a church event, so this isn't anybody in this room. Uh, put your minds at ease. But we were sitting at this dinner, and there was this man at the table who began to tell story after story after story from his life. And the first 15 minutes, his stories were interesting and engaging. But by the time we got to about story number four, without a pause, about 20 minutes in, it began to get wearisome. About 40 minutes in, I began to silently pray that a trap door would open in the floor, <laughs> that we could escape this conversation or an eject button in the chair. And this man continued to go on and on and on. He would leave about a half second between stories, not enough for me to even say, well, it's time to go. And so I would listen and listen, and finally, I just had to say, I had to interrupt him in the middle of a story and say, hey, we've got to go. We've got somewhere else to be. I don't believe he even noticed that we left because mid-story, he turned to somebody else and continued the same story at the table, never pausing, never asking a question, never stopping to listen. And what it communicates when we do that, and maybe we're not that extreme, but we do it in smaller ways, is I'm more important than you. But God is a God who aims to know us, to listen to our prayers, as well as to speak. And so we want to reflect him. The other problem with speaking a lot is that the more we talk, the more likely we are to say something stupid or sinful. Proverbs says, when words abound, transgression is unavoidable. When words abound, transgression, it's not likely, it's unavoidable. You will do it. But the one who restrains his words 
is wise. There are a lot of Proverbs like this saying it's better just to hold your tongue rather than to open your mouth and say something foolish. Here's another one. Even a fool who remains silent is considered wise. And the one who holds his tongue is deemed discerning. Just by being quiet, a fool can look smart. There's an American version of this proverb, often attributed to Benjamin Franklin. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. You've heard it before. When we talk and talk and talk, we greatly increase our likelihood of saying something sinful, hurtful, foolish, stupid. And so the idea is that we're, we're called upon in the scripture to not always be the ones to talk, but also to listen. James says, be quick to hear and slow to speak. There is a time to speak. That time is not always at every moment to fill every gap. And I think this is true online as well as it is in person. I don't always have to give my opinion about everything on Facebook. The world will keep revolving if people don't have my opinions all the time, my thoughts all the time, my words all the time. So over-talking is the first pitfall. Second one, gossip. Proverbs talks a lot about the dangers of gossip as one of the pitfalls that we can fall into. And what it says about our hearts. There, there are some Proverbs, interestingly, like this one that say, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down into the person's innermost being. So the, the writer of Proverbs here, Solomon, he says, look, there's something really appealing about gossip. It's like eating chocolate chips straight from the back, something that I might do from time to time. It tastes really good. They're sweet, they're sugary, they go down smooth into your innermost being, and it tastes really good going down, but you run the risk of wreaking havoc once it's in there. It does damage. There's something in us that loves gossip. Maybe this is just me, but, but I wonder if from time to time you've ever been on a news website or social media or whatever, and you see one of those uh, articles that's like 15 celebrities who have ruined their appearance, and you're like, I don't need to, no, I do need to see, right? <laughs> and so you click on it, because there's something in you that feels better when you learn about the faults, even of wealthy, rich, powerful, really good-looking people, right? Why did Taylor Swift break up with her boyfriend? Who needs to know that? I want to know that. And so we click. But it's not just celebrities, is it? It's also our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family. We pass around gossip. Often what that tells us is that we have a heart that likes to judge other people and feel superior to them because I can talk about their flaws as if those other people are just a collection of their worst moments and flaws. And it makes me feel better. But it does damage to relationships and to our hearts. Proverbs 16, 28. A perverse person spreads dissension and a gossip separates the closest of friends. Have you ever had a friendship damaged or destroyed by gossip? I have. I've been, unfortunately, on the receiving and the giving end of that equation. It separates friends from one another. It produces mistrust. Even when we apologize, the damage is often already 
done. And for what? Just for something to say when we're bored, to make ourselves feel better at the expense of somebody else who isn't in the room to defend themselves. It damages relationships. True story. When I was in seventh grade, I went on a uh, hiking trip in Colorado with my, my church youth group. And we took two vans, and there were about 20 kids. So there were about 10 kids in each van plus the driver. So everywhere we went, we would divide up into two groups and, and travel from place to place. One day, as we were going uh, from from place to place in Colorado, a few of us in one van began to gossip about a girl who was in the other van, about some things that people didn't like about her. She's stuck up, she's snooty, whatever. We began to gossip about this girl. And this went on for several minutes as we went from one spot to another spot. And it wasn't until we got where we were going that we remembered her dad was driving the van. Yeah, your groan is how all of us felt internally as there was silence in that van as he turned it off, got out of the car, and walked away without unlocking the doors to let us out (laughs) of the van. And it was cringeworthy partly because we were found out, but it was really cringeworthy because it, it happened in the first place. We were saying what we should not have said what came from a heart of judgmentalism and unkindness rather than the grace of God. And so the writer of Proverbs warns us to put a stop to it. Where there is no wood, a fire goes out. Where there is no gossip, contention, this strife, this mistrust, it stops. Somebody comes to me to gossip, comes to you to gossip, to shut it down. Don't add another log on the fire. Yeah, here's what I also know about that person's financial situation, about that person's struggling relationship, about what Sally said to Bob, about this, about that. Here's what I also know, and I toss another log on the fire. Proverbs 26 tells us, shut it down. Avoid that heart of gossip that comes from a heart of judgment. So over-talking, gossip, The third one, we're going to start stepping on toes, if we haven't already, including my own, sarcasm. Now, bear with me. Some of you are saying, but wait, that's my spiritual gift. Okay, (laughs) I hear you. And if I'm honest, I struggle with this one as well. But I want you to look at this passage, Proverbs 26, 18. Like a madman who shoots firebrands and deadly arrows is a person who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? What is sarcasm fundamentally? Well, as we're defining it this morning, sarcasm is when I say what I don't actually mean, I say the opposite of what I mean for humorous effect and to cut, to bite, to sting just a little bit. So maybe a friend says something that you think is not super intelligent and you go, yeah, good word, Einstein. Nobody ever calls another person Einstein, by the way, sincerely. It's almost always sarcastic. Somebody shows up late and says, I'm sorry, I'm late. And you say, that's okay. Clearly, your time is more important than my time. And what do we do? Well, we we cut. Why do we do it? 
but we do it because we feel angry, we feel upset, we feel unsettled, and instead of having the maturity emotionally, spiritually, and relationally to address it directly, we cut passive-aggressively. We slice quietly. And what happens over time is those relationships, they, they die and they suffer from a thousand little cuts. I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but research actually shows that the number one predictor of divorce in five years, 10 years, 15 years, they can predict it with relative accuracy. The number one predictor is contempt, the rolling of the eyes, the sarcastic jab, the always having to cut the person down in little ways rather than addressing the issue directly. And sometimes we say, well, that's just my sense of humor. Everybody knows it. I'm just joking around. Everybody gets it. It's funny. Everybody laughs. They understand. Are you sure? Do you know that? I remember uh, in the first couple of years uh, in my time at this church as a college pastor, 20 years ago, we had a number of uh, college interns, seven or eight of them. They all sat in one office, and at that time, they often engaged with one another through these sarcastic types of jabs. They would kind of make fun of one another, joke around, and everybody would laugh. Everybody in the room, ha, that's so funny. And they would laugh, and they convinced themselves this was how they were bonding. And then one afternoon, this young woman came into my office and I said, how are you doing today? And she burst into tears and said, I can't take it anymore. The constant cutting, the constant sarcastic jabs. I laugh when I'm in their presence, but I go home and I bleed from a thousand little cuts. Are you sure your spouse your kids, your coworkers aren't bleeding out from the death of a thousand cuts, from your words that jab, that sting, that are passive aggressive. Proverbs says, if that's what you're doing, it's as if I came over to your house this afternoon and started tossing Molotov cocktails in through the windows. And as your house catches on fire and it begins to burn to the ground and you flee the house with your weeping children and spouse, and you're out on the lawn, you see me, and I'm doubled over in laughter. And you say, what's so funny about this? You've destroyed my home. And I go, chill out. It's just a joke. It's just a few Molotov cocktails between friends through the windows. Like a madman who shoots firebrands and deadly arrows is a person who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? It cuts. So over-talking, gossip, sarcasm, they tell us something about our hearts. Fourthly, arguing and complaining. Arguing and complaining. I put these two together because I think often they are two sides of the same coin. That there's something going on in my heart where I'm discontent, I'm unhappy with the people around me, with the circumstances of my life. So maybe I pick fights to get people to try to conform themselves to my vision of the world. Do what I say. And if you don't, I'm going to constantly aggressively pursue you in conflict. Or I quietly complain. I grumble. This food is too cold. The air is too hot. I don't like this sweater. Nothing goes my way. 
Arguing and complaining are twin sides of the same coin that often reveal a heart of bitterness and discontent. So Proverbs warns us about both. When it comes to arguing, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. This is the ancient version of you're cruising for a bruising. That there are certain people that walk around and they're just always poised to fight. They've got fists up and anybody who crosses them, who does things they don't like, they're ready to fight. Maybe not physically, but verbally. When it comes to complaining, this passage, this next one, we saw this a couple of weeks ago when Trey talked about rest, but it also applies here. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting and strife. You can have a full belly and a table covered in food and yet discontent and division in your house because of the complaining and the anger and the strife. Better to have a little with peace and contentment in your heart toward God than constant striving with a table covered with all of life's finest things. Another verse about complaining. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a contentious wife are alike. Now, let me explain this verse for a moment. (laughs) It's important to remember the book of Proverbs is written from a father to his son. And so as a father to a son, he is telling his son, there are certain women that I would recommend you steer clear of. We'll see another one next week and we'll talk about the same thing. Solomon is not being misogynistic here. He's not saying that women are only always the ones that complain. It's in a certain context. I believe if he were talking about spouses in general here to a general audience, he would say, this is what it's like to live with a person who always complains, husband or wife. It's like a continual dripping on a rainy day that you can't get away from. Ever had that happen? a faucet dripping, and you go, why can't I stop that sound? That's what it's like. There's all kinds of proverbs like this. Better to live on the corner of your roof or out in the desert than with a complaining spouse who's never content. It shows something about our hearts. Some of you will recognize this guy. This guy is cute on TV. You don't want to live with him. This is Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, of course. And here he's saying another boring day in the Hundred Acre Wood, but at least it's raining because that shows how sad I am. Who wants to live with Eeyore? And yet some of us are Eeyore, if we're honest. We argue, we complain. Again, what does this show us about our hearts as we evaluate? We're discontent with what God has given. So over-talking, gossip, sarcasm, arguing and complaining, and then fifthly and lastly, boasting. Boasting. Ben talked about this one a few weeks ago. Uh, This prideful need to share all of my accomplishments, all of my virtues, all of the important people I know and important and wonderful places I've been, all of the things I can do that you can't do, either because I'm smarter, have more money, whatever it may be. I boast about my life in order to make myself feel important rather than to elevate God and his glory. 
or to elevate other people made in God's image. I say, I'm going to elevate me because I want you to notice me. It's a similar motivation to when we talk too much. So the writer of Proverbs, he says, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. This is a danger in person. I think it's also a danger on social media. I recognize there is a time perhaps to joyfully celebrate. Maybe one of our kids or our spouse accomplished something that we want to celebrate and bring honor to that person. But I think we have to be careful about everything we post or say always being a way to shine a spotlight onto ourselves and our lives to say, look how great I am, look how great I have it. There are all sorts of ways that we can boast, even if it's not overt. The humble brag, the name drop, whatever it may be. Years ago, I, I went to a conference and I was, at a, I was at a breakout and I don't remember who the speaker was. That's probably a good thing. What I do remember, this is what I remember, is uh, this man continued to name drop throughout the entire talk, except he would say, look, I don't really like name dropping, but I just have to tell you, like, you know, when I was praying with Billy Graham about this talk I was about to give, he was so encouraging to me, right? And he would just name after name after name after name, always preceded by, but I don't like to name drop. And I thought, you've name dropped 10 people in the course of 30 minutes. Where does that come from? A heart that says, I know someone important, so I'm important, so look at me. I think we do it in all kinds of ways. And so the writer of Proverbs says, don't do that, and here, here's why. Only God is ultimately worthy of the type of praise we often try to hoard for ourselves. Although God is scornful to the arrogant scoffer, yet he shows favor to the humble. Peter, in 1 Peter, we saw this when Ben talked about pride. Peter paraphrases this. God opposes the proud. He's against the proud. But he gives what? Grace to the humble. Grace and mercy to the one who recognizes God is God and I am not. Arrogant words spring from an arrogant heart. And so the scripture says, watch out for that arrogant heart. So these pitfalls, they're real. All of us fall into them. Over-talking, gossip, sarcasm, arguing and complaining, boasting. James, again, James says, nobody has ever tamed the tongue. Nobody's ever done it. If a person can bridle his tongue, he's a perfect person, perfect in everything he does. I'm not that person. You're not that person. And yet what we want to do, again, is look at, this, look at this list and say, where does my heart need to change? It's an evaluative tool. And then, then we fall on the grace of God for forgiveness in those areas we fall short, and for transformation for the future. So let me offer uh, an application for us over the course of the next week. I wanna challenge you to do this. Keep a speech journal for one week, for one week. 
and write down, first of all, where uh, did my words encourage or help or build up another person? Where were they timely and necessary and honest and God-honoring? But also say, here's where I fell short. Sarcasm reared its head again toward my spouse, toward my kids, toward my coworkers, whatever it may be, right? Arguing, complaining, reared its head again. And so you write it down at the beginning or end of each day. And you ask yourself, what kinds of patterns of speech in my life are good ones? And what patterns of speech need to change? Where am I honoring God with my speech? Where do I need to grow? My guess is you will find one or two of these that are of particular difficulty in your life. And so what we do, well, we come before God and we pray. We say, God, what I need is a transformed heart that leads to transformed speech. I say angry words, honestly, God, because I'm angry. And I need you to to transform that in me. I'm sarcastic because I feel bitter toward this person. And I don't know how to just tell the truth. I brag because I'm insecure. I I don't feel accepted or important enough. God, remind me that you love me. You made me in your image. And Jesus died for me and rose again. And so we ask God for a transformed heart. Here's the good news, is that although all of us have failed, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ covers our sin, past, present, and future. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone, to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. You know that the death and resurrection of Christ bridges that gap between who we are and who God has called us to be because we fall short. And in order to know God, we have to be holy as God is holy. And so Jesus died and rose again to take away our impurity, our sin, and to make us again people who can approach God and know God and have eternal life with God. And then he gave us the Holy Spirit to help us change and transform moving forward. As we close this morning then, we're gonna observe communion. And as we observe communion, I want us to take a moment and simply thank God for what he's done in Jesus Christ. To confess, God, there are areas of my life in which my speech has fallen short of your design, of your character. But thank him that Jesus died and Jesus rose to pay the penalty for our impure hearts, our impure speech, our impure actions. So say, God, I wanna know you in deeper ways. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him for forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, you're free to participate with us in communion. You don't have to be a member of the church to do that. If you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ, feel free to abstain this morning. Nobody's gonna judge you or look at you weird, but instead take this moment and make this the moment where you come before God. You say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've failed in many ways with my speech and my words, my actions, my heart. But I believe Jesus died for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead so I can be forgiven and have eternal life. If you know Jesus, let's take a moment as we prepare. The elements are in front of you, in the seat back in front of you, and simply thank him for all he's done for us in Jesus Christ.